I'm sure that your Bible is just going to fall right open to 1 Corinthians now that we've been in it for a few weeks. And so, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at verses 17 to 25, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 25. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it a great help to have your own copies of Scripture open and reading along there with me. Um, we are in that great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the church he had planted, a church that was laden with problems. And this morning we come to one of the most glorious passages in all the Scripture, one of those passages that you return to time and time and time again and never seem to exhaust the wonder of what the Holy Spirit has inspired in it. And so as you turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 25, let's go to the Lord and pray and ask for his blessing on the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. And that God would enable me to preach with power the gospel that he has to affect in you powerfully and that he only can do through the preaching of Christ crucified. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for every word that you have spoken and we thank you especially for portions of scripture like the one we're coming to this morning. We thank you for the glorious truths of Christ crucified for sinners like us. That the message of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. And our Father, we need wisdom and we need power. And we acknowledge that we, Lord, are full of weakness and foolishness and emptiness in and of ourselves. And yet you and your Son, the Lord Jesus, are full of wisdom and power and righteousness and glory. And so we pray that you would bless abundantly. Father in heaven, we pray that you would pour out such a blessing on us this morning that we would leave this place saying, the Lord, the Lord is there. We pray, Father, that you would give us a great sense of what we have in Jesus Christ and our need for him, that we would even feel within us a great longing to know more, more of our Savior. Father in heaven, help us, we pray. We cast ourselves on you and your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, there the apostle writes these words, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I was talking to an unbeliever last night, and telling him how much I had left to do after a full week to get ready to preach a sermon today. And he looked at me and he said, oh, come on, you preach the same thing every Sunday. 
And it was a very subversive way of him saying, you really don't have that much to do. It's easy for you because you just say the same thing over and over. And as I thought about what he was saying, and though it was probably meant to be an insult, there was actually a great measure of truth in what he was saying. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, you're right. I do preach the same thing every Sunday. And there's something beautiful about that. There's something wonderful about that because what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's saying there is one thing that I was appointed to preach and that one thing works and it works and it works and it works and it keeps on working even though the world doesn't get it, even though the world is offended by it, even though the world thinks it's foolish, even though we are reviled because of it, Paul said that's the one thing that I preach, that's the one thing Christ has appointed me to do, that is the place where God exudes all of his wisdom and all of his power. And notice, Paul has just finished telling us in this letter about divisions in this church in Corinth. And he's told us that this church was divided because the people in the church, they wanted the rhetoricians. They wanted the eloquent men. They wanted the men that could get up and could wax eloquently and could tell them all the different sides and could reason different sides and could talk about theology and could say, well, on one hand you have this, but then people say this and they could convince people of anything. And the Corinthian church had fallen into the trap of thinking, we need men like that preaching to us. Men who are crafting these sermons that are amazing and that the... the philosophers around us would marvel at and and in some way that it would take away the reproach of the gospel and the reproach of a crucified savior and the real thing we need is we need intellect and we need we need eloquence and we need all of these things that the people around us are trusting in and the culture in which we're living in the rationalist there's a trust in scientific investigation there's a trust in philosophies of the age we need that in the church because we're the church after all shouldn't we have the best Maybe even in the name of Jesus. Shouldn't we have the best? Shouldn't we have the most eloquent and the most finely crafted, logical, rational speakers? And the Apostle Paul noticed what he says to them. They were divided. They were picking. I like Paul. I like Apollos. I like Cephas. Some were even saying, I like Christ. We're of Christ. We're better than you. That's who we follow. And notice what Paul says in verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, the whole link with baptism there, Paul had said some were saying, I was baptized by Paul, I was baptized by Peter, this is our guy, we belong to this camp, we belong to this group. And Paul says, ultimately, the the biggest thing that Christ sent me to do was not to baptize people so they could say, I baptized them, but he sent me to preach the gospel. And then notice what Paul says. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. We're going to see three things today. First, we're going to see the centrality of the cross. Secondly, we're going to see the division of the cross. And then we're going to see the paradox of the cross. The centrality of the cross, the division of the cross, and the paradox of the cross. Well, Paul is telling us in verse 17 that there is one thing that's central, that all gospel ministry must center on the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. The message of Jesus Christ crucified. The message of the Son of God coming from heaven to earth being beaten and spit upon and mocked and bruised and hung on a tree for all to see the public display of a king being treated as a traitor, a king being treated as a criminal, a king being treated as something despised. And Paul says that, that is the central message. And notice what he says in verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel. It's actually interesting. You might expect him to say God, because Christ is God. And generally, when Paul talks about authority, he says that God has sent him. But Christ has been the missing ingredient in Corinth. Remember, the solution to the problem of the divisions was, was Paul crucified for you? Is Christ divided? That Christ was central. That Christ is the one in whom all believers have everything. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the savior of the body. Christ is the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Christ is central. There is no Christianity without Christ. Not the ethical teachings of Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus. There is no Christianity without Christ. And so it's interesting that Paul now says, appealing to Christ, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It had been Jesus on the Damascus Road who had given Paul the message. Paul didn't craft that message in his wisdom. Paul didn't come up with that message. He didn't look around and say, you know what, I really think this is the best of this and this is the best of this. Jesus had said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. You're going to preach me. You're going to preach me for the deliverance of captivity from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the power of God. You're going to preach me for sanctification in that one commissioning of Jesus, commissioning of the Apostle Paul by Jesus, Jesus said, you are going to preach me, you're going to preach my cross, you're going to preach my gospel. And notice that Paul says that is central in the message. Now, I think that's important to us today because we want to reach people. We want our churches to grow, just like the Corinthians wanted to reach people. We want our churches to grow. And time after time after time, churches remove the cross from their preaching, and they will preach anything else to make their churches grow. And let me remind you, the Apostle Paul wanted to reach people. This is a man that said, my heart's desire for Israel is that they may be saved. This is a man that trekked all across the known world, planting churches, trying to reach people with the gospel, and never did Paul shun back from preaching the cross of Christ. No matter how offensive, no matter how foolish, no matter how much he was persecuted for it, Paul pressed on in preaching Christ crucified. And so there's something wonderful In Paul telling us in verse 17, there's something wonderful in him telling us that that is the central message of Christianity. I think we are very tempted to move away from that constantly. So there's got to be more. There's got to be something else. There's got to be something more filling, more fulfilling. Um, I think you see this in the book of Galatians, too, where the Judaizers were willing to have Christ, but they didn't want too much Christ, and they didn't want to see the cross as complete. They didn't want to see what Jesus did at the cross as sufficient. They wanted to add a little human doing, a little ritualistic circumcision to Jesus. I think that we have a tendency to want to do that. And so it's helpful as we come back to a verse like this, not just for gospel ministry, for Christian living, that you would say, that you would be people that say, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That you would be able to say, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've heard... Sinclair Ferguson say this, I think he's right. I've heard him say, how many ministers started their ministry saying, I am going to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as you watch that ministry unfold, they do it less and less and less and less. It's not easy to keep that central. But it's a central message. Notice what... Paul now says in, verse, in verses 18 and following, secondly, he tells us about the division of the cross. I think this is really the substance of our text. Now, it's interesting. Paul has told us that we ought to be unified. He's told us that Jesus hates division in the church. He's told us 
that we ought to we ought to see that we are one in Christ and that Christ crucified is what unifies us with other believers and that we ought not be divided and that we ought not bicker and we ought not fight over things that are not dividing points, that are not essentials in the Christian doctrine. He has called us to radical unity and there is a danger, there's a danger in saying that means we're to be unified with everybody and we're never to have division and we're never to be divided over anything. And it's interesting that on the heels of Paul dealing with division in the church, he now turns around and he says, oh, there is a division. The cross does divide. This is why keeping the message of the cross central is so difficult. Notice what Paul says in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, Paul is going to unpack this and he's going to talk about Jews and he's going to talk about Gentiles and he's going to tell us the Jews, they wanted signs, they wanted earthly power, they wanted a kingdom, they wanted a Messiah who would make them great and and the Gentiles, the Greeks, they wanted philosophical wisdom and knowledge and the world was really divided, Jew and Gentile. What Paul is going to say is that the cross has done a definitive dividing line, not between Jew and Gentile, but between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And that the message of the cross draws a radical dividing line through all of human history, through man and man, through father and son, through uh, daughter and mother. There's a radical division. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, to divide a man from those in his own household. He's talking about this. He's talking about this. He's talking about putting a dividing line between you, believer, and even people that you hang out with who may not be believers. There's a radical dividing line because of the cross. And Paul unpacks that division, and he tells us why there's this division. Notice in verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I remember as a young Christian, having been converted out of such darkness, and having had my eyes open to see Christ, the treasure in the field, and realizing what I had been missing, what I had been rebelling against, what I had been throwing away, and having had my heart so enlarged by God's Spirit and wondering how could anyone not love to hear about a crucified Savior who died under the wrath of God for sinners like me? How could anyone not love hearing that? And yet, history and Scripture bear witness that the majority of mankind find the message of the cross to be folly. There's a recent... Uh, theologian in England, one of the heads of the emergent church, and he has said the idea of God punishing his son, penal substitution, substituting his son in my place and pouring out his wrath on him is nothing short of divine child abuse. And that's what the world thinks of the cross. They think it's something disgusting and base and foolish. How could a man being nailed to a tree, hands and feet nailed to the tree, beaten, mocked, how could, how could that be Anything but stupidity and foolishness. Even those around him when he was crucified thought that. Think of those at the foot of the cross. Come down. Get yourself down. Even the thief next to him thought it was folly. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Get yourself down. That's what people think. That's what unbelievers think. Unbelievers look at the cross. They don't see a Savior. They see stupidity and foolishness and weakness. And they hate it and it's an offense to them. The believer, on the other hand, looks at the cross and sees that it is the power of God unto salvation. They see past the crucified Savior. They see the divine Son of God. They see the Father at Calvary. The Father was there. The Father was there pouring out His wrath on His Son, pouring out His wrath, pouring out His wrath, pouring out His wrath for you who are under the wrath and curse of God by nature. The Father was there. 
And we look at that and we say, the cross is the power of God. Let me say this. I think there's a psychology to why people don't love hearing this. I think that the first thing is that the cross reveals our depravity. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. People do not like being told they're utterly, hopelessly wicked and depraved. Maybe you don't like hearing that. People do not like hearing that they are wicked and rebellious and totally unable to do anything good. The natural man hates that in his heart more than anything. Is You could not offend the natural man any more than by telling the natural man there is nothing good in him and that he is despicable before the presence of a holy God. And that's what we are. And so the natural man looks at the cross, and the natural man hears the Apostle Paul saying he was, he was crucified for us, and the natural man hears that in the death of Jesus, the wrath of God was propitiated, and the natural man hears that God had to pour out the wrath that he deserved on his son, and instead of loving that and running to the son and believing in the son and embracing the son and falling prostrate before the son, the natural man hates that. Because the natural man finds it to be an affront to his pride. Listen to this. John Calvin says, All the wisdom of believers is comprehended in the cross of Christ. And what more contemptible than a cross? Whoever, therefore, would desire to be truly wise in God's account must of necessity stoop to this abasement of the cross. This will not be accomplished otherwise than by his first of all renouncing his own judgment and all the wisdom of the world. What Calvin's saying is that if you are a believer, what you have done is you have thrown off any desire to be wise. You have thrown off any desire to be right and good enough and try to establish your own righteousness. And you have fallen face first before a crucified man being executed for your sin. And the reason men don't want to do that is because men love their pride. They love themselves. Uh, Conscience is hardwired to the covenant of works. Let me say that again. Conscience is hardwired to the covenant of works. Your conscience by nature is hardwired to say, I want to do it. I want to be good enough. I want God to accept me because of what I've done. And the gospel says, you are dead in sins. I will do it. I will do it for you. I will do it by means of a shameful death at Calvary. I will do it because I love you. And yet the natural man's conscience is so hardwired to the covenant of works that he will not receive the gospel and he will look straight at a crucified savior and he will mock it and he will find it to be foolish and he will reject it to his own demise. Now, I want to read to you I want to read to you another quote that I found very helpful. Walter Lowry, he was a missionary to China in the 19th century wrote these words. The religion of Christ crucified has some disagreeable doctrines such as the natural man does not and cannot receive. Among these is that of our total depravity. If the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, teaches anything clearly, it is that there is no good thing, that we are polluted sinners in God's sight, by nature the children of wrath, out of favor, exposed, and that deservedly to death, and the pains of hell forever. There is nothing in us acceptable to God. If you're finding this hard to listen to, I understand. But it's what the New Testament teaches. By nature we're the children of wrath, out of favor, exposed, deservedly to death and the pains of hell forever. There's nothing in us acceptable to God. 
nothing worthy of eternal life. Men may be amiable, men may be moral, men may be like the young ruler that Jesus loved, but alas, apply the infallible touchstone to their cases and it will be found that all have gone away backward, each in his own way. It is not much wonder that men dislike to be told these things. We think highly of ourselves and love to think so, but the religion of Christ brings down all these high thoughts and exalts them against God. Now, I oftentimes complain to friends and say, the good news is not being preached in pulpits all around the world. People don't know the good news. And I started saying recently, and I know others have said this, people don't know the bad news, and that's why they don't know the good news. The cross is only good news because of the bad news. And if you have not embraced the fact that you are depraved by nature, that you are utterly wicked and a rebel against the God of heaven, and that you deserve his wrath to all eternity, you will never see the wisdom and the power and the glory of Christ crucified. Because only those that embrace what they are will run to the cross. And so the apostle says, notice there's a division. There's a division between those who are perishing, those who are being saved. And notice that while those perishing find the cross to be folly, and stupidity and worthless. Those who are being saved, you might expect Paul to say, find it to be the wisdom, not the folly, but he says they find it to be the power. Look at that in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. So Paul is saying that the cross is not just a source of wisdom. It's not that we look at it and say, oh, I understand things. I'm wiser than other people. It is the source of power, first and foremost, for the believer. The believer has his life changed. The believer has his nature changed. The believer is turned from hatred to God to love to God through that cross. So that power is affected in the preaching of Christ crucified. There are many times I wish I could reach down into people that I preach to and I could empower them to see something and I can't but God has said in the message of Christ crucified the son of God substituting himself for sinners taking the wrath of God propitiating the wrath of God atoning for sin expiating iniquity in that message power is wrought in the hearts of those that God is saving and there is an infinite power There is an almighty power. God is not going to spare anything in bringing his people to see and believe in his son. And so the apostle says in verse 18, it may be folly to those perishing. It is the power of God to those being saved. Now, thirdly, and and connected with the division, the apostle is going to tell us finally, there's a paradox to the cross. The centrality to the cross, there's a division because of the cross, there's a paradox to the cross. I tried to think of an illustration. I couldn't think of any. There's almost nothing in this world that's paradoxical. And yet, that's one of the difficult things about getting your mind around the gospel is that it is paradoxical. Notice what Paul says. He calls, as it were, all of the wise people, all of the mighty people, all of the philosophers, all of the intellects. He says, why don't you come here? Why don't you bring all of your wisdom? Why don't you bring everything you want to bring? And I will bring the wisdom of God and the message of Christ crucified. And notice... Notice what he says in verse 21. Verse 20, he says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Men by nature try to structure reality. They try to, they try to discern what they are. They try to discern what the world is. They try to tell us where the world came from. 
Um, these are the men that people put on pedestals. Usually they're very wicked men. Michel Foucault, probably one of the most famous philosophers of the 20th century, exceedingly wicked man. Intellects all over the world put him on a pedestal. This man can tell us. Just like they did with Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, just like they've done through all of human history, men trying in their own reason, in their own wisdom, in their own depravity to say, this is what we are and this is where we came from. And notice what Paul says in verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In the gospel, while it looks foolish to the unbeliever, we actually see that God is making foolish everything that man has ever, ever surmised, ever tried to say about the world. Everything we look at, as that's the touchstone, everything we look at through the lens of Christ crucified is shown to be what it really is, foolishness, empty, useless. Everything that those who are perishing think about the cross is actually true about what they say and what they teach and what they propagate. Um, I know you guys know this. I've told you in the past I watch a number of shows that are sort of science fiction driven. And it's interesting, um, the show Lost and Fringe, all by the same guy, they're all built on a pagan theory called multiverse, where there's two universes, there's one you in one universe, there's one you in another, and this is going to explain good and evil, it's going to explain why there's good and why there's evil in the world. And it's very popular right now, multiverse theory. It is foolishness and stupidity. There is one universe. Jesus came into it. He hung on a tree in it for your sins and my sins because we are evil in order to redeem us and to make us like him and to bring us to glory into another world, into the heavenly realm. And so as you look at the gospel and you look at what everyone tries to do with reality and what men try to do in their fallen reason and their their capacity, we see that God has made it foolish. And notice this. There's an impossibility It's almost humorous. Men are trying. They're trying to explain things. They're trying to be teachers and tell others what to believe. And there's something humorous in it because Paul says in God's wisdom, he made them in their wisdom not to know his wisdom. And that God in his infinite wisdom decided I'm going to create this world and there's going to be a fall. And men are going to try to determine what they are, where they came from. And they're only going to know by revelation. And they're only going to know in my son Jesus and in my wisdom, I am going to hide my wisdom from them so that in their wisdom, they can't learn my wisdom. And it's beautiful. Paul's going to later go on and say, that wisdom was hidden for you and me who would be redeemed for glory. It was the hidden wisdom. There is a real wisdom in Christ crucified. There is a real source of knowledge and understanding of being reconciled to God of being brought back into fellowship with the God who is all-wise and all-powerful. And notice, notice what he says. Paul will explain this paradox and why so many get tripped up over it. He says in verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It doesn't matter whether you were a Jew and you tried to look for signs and wonders and have an earthly kingdom and power, or whether you were a Gentile and a Greek and used your mind and like the rational scientific side of things, God says both are futile, and to both of them, the cross is a paradox. To the Jews, instead of being the power that they wanted, even though it is the source of power, it became a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, instead of being the source of wisdom they needed because they sought for wisdom, it became, a stum- it became foolishness. But, Notice verse 24, the paradox. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. My dad used to say to me when I was a little boy, 
we would watch Nova. Very boring when you're a little boy. We would watch Nova. Carl Sagan. should write my dad a letter and remind him. He made me go through that when I was like five. But he would do that. And he would say to my sister and I, he would say, this man is very foolish. Carl Sagan telling us how old the universe is, where we came from, how we evolved. Every show on Nova was about evolution and evolutionary theory. And the Apostle Paul comes in and he says, you who believe in Jesus actually have the wisdom of God in Christ. And my dad used to say to me and my sister, I'll never forget it, I was five, four or five years old, he used to say, he'd say, he'd say, Nick, you, if you believe in Jesus, know more than all of these scientists and philosophers with all of their learning and all of their PhDs. And you know what? My dad was absolutely right. A child who knows Jesus knows more and has true wisdom. And those men, in all of their learning and all of their study, are in active, foolish rebellion against God and actually have no wisdom. And so Paul tells us, listen, in knowing Christ, in knowing him as our Savior and coming to him for atonement and forgiveness, we actually get in his death and resurrection, in the message of the gospel, power and wisdom from God. And then notice how he sums it all up in this paradoxical statement. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You may be saying, wait a minute. That doesn't feel right. Calling God foolish and weak? I think Paul in verse 25 is actually still talking about Christ when he says, the foolishness of God, you could insert Christ. The foolish Christ of God is wiser than men, and the weak Christ of God is stronger than men. Men see him, there's an apparent foolishness, there's apparent weakness, there's apparent emptiness. Who can save somebody when they're nailed to a tree next to criminals nailed to a tree? Who can save people without hands or feet to save them? This man who who said he was God manifest in the flesh, who taught great things that men never heard, ends up being crucified on a tree. The foolishness and the weakness of God is wiser and stronger than men. I want to close with some verses out of a, a Michael Card song I love um, called God's End Fool. It's, it's written on this text. Listen carefully to this. Michael Card said, When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. It sums up magnificently what the Apostle tells us. Beloved, may we, may we continue looking to the one who appeared foolish and weak for the power and the wisdom that we need in every day, in every aspect of our lives, for every second of our lives until we're with him. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men because of Christ and him crucified. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says this morning to the church. Let's pray. Our Father, we need wisdom and we need power, and we... We come to you this morning knowing that you are the source of wisdom and power. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to see in your Son who appeared as nothing, who came in the flesh and was born of a virgin and who 
was born in a peasant home as a peasant beggar baby, that in that one who hung on the tree at the end of his life, who went from linen cloths as a baby to linen cloths in the tomb, that that one in his humiliation is your almighty wisdom and power for us. Father, we bless you for the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and that you willingly laid down your life for us, that you stood in our place condemned. We thank you that you took the wrath that we deserve. We thank you that our sins are forgiven and that we are justified and reconciled and adopted and sanctified and we will be glorified because of what you did at Calvary. Lord Jesus Christ, open the eyes of our hearts wide to see our need for the gospel again this morning. Soften our hearts, Lord. Give us humility under the reality of our sinfulness and our need for the Savior. We pray if there's any here who have not repented of their sins and have not trusted in your wisdom and your power in Christ crucified, Father, that they would trust and they would believe and they would come be a fool. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.